The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's special guest has written two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails. With the prospects of war approaching more and more by the day, I decided to invite him back to discuss what the most practical scenario would be in order to prepare in the event of war on American soil. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. The next guest is Matthew Stein, a design engineer, green builder, and author. Stein is a graduate of MIT, where he majored in mechanical engineering. And we have a more detailed bio on our website. To learn more about Matthew Stein and his work, visit his website at whentechfails.com. Matthew Stein, welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Oh, I'm really terrific today. And thank you so much for having me on. I think it's real important uh, with what's going on in the world that we have our eyes open and with a really broad view and not just a narrow focus. Absolutely. And we're going to go all over the place. So, folks, please buckle, buckle up because we're going to go to places where you will not go when you turn on your TV. And we're going to give you a lot of historical perspective so that you know what could possibly be happening here. But first of all, let me just say this regarding this show. It's very apolitical. We try not to get into politics, but everybody knows I voted for Trump because I could not stand Hillary Clinton. So to many people, it's the lesser of two evils. At the same time, what I'm seeing lately, I was happy a couple of weeks ago, Matt, when the president says, said we were pulling every single troop out of Syria. I thought, great, that's going to be a done deal. Russia is working with Syria. They're going to be getting rid of the remnants of what's happening there. Done. All of a sudden, we get this Iraq invasion lover neocon John Bolton back in the White House as an advisor. And all of a sudden, there's a 180 degree turn from Trump. And immediately after, we get this latest chemical attack on the people in Syria. Without any any investigation, the Western world is already blaming Assad. And it seems a, a repeat of 2003 with Colin Powell showing the little vial of chemical weapons that as Saddam Hussein had. Your take on this? Well, my take is that it's a really complicated place in Syria. And Trump really values the the advice of his generals, which is a double-edged sword. Like um, John F. Kennedy listened to his generals and supported the Bay of Pigs invasion. And when he realized that they lied to him and they suckered him in there, and then they were planning on him saying, well, now we're committed in sending in full troops and, and basically invading Cuba and supporting the Bay of Pigs invasion. And Kennedy felt totally suckered, and he pulled out, and then he was getting ready to pull out of Vietnam, and he's getting ready to nationalize the uh, 
you know, the Federal Reserve, and he got whacked. He got, he got killed. Now, the exact details and exactly how he got killed, I'm not totally clear on, but to me, it's clear that, uh, you know, the military industrial complex didn't like it, didn't like the direction he was going. Johnson didn't want it. They teamed up with maybe a bunch of other people and, and they got rid of him. Now, so we're in a dangerous territory here. Trump, for one, is listening to the generals. But he also has brought back in a number one neocon from the Bush administration who's all into invasions. You know, he's made it very clear that in the past he would have invaded Syria, that he would have invaded uh, Iran. And this, so this is a very, very dangerous situation where, um, you know, you have generals that are war hawks in general, <laughs> no pun intended. And then you have a guy who's even more of a war hawk than the generals, Bolton, and and he's and those are two people who who's got his ears. So we're in dangerous territory now. As far as whether it's deep state or not, let me just talk a little bit about the background in Syria. The generals felt that you know they went in uh, during Obama and and they supported the Kurds in fighting ISIS, and and they and the Kurds were, I think, you know. A valid force, a good force for fighting ISIS. Now, we'll get back into how ISIS got founded in, in a minute, but let's go down this rabbit hole first. So they've, so now, as we're kind of talking about pulling out, the generals right, rightfully feel, hey, we've supported and committed to these Kurds. But now on one side, Erdogan, I think, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, the, the head of uh, Turkey. Erdogan? Yeah, he, okay, that's correct. He, he's, He's saying, hey, the Kurds are a real thorn in my side, and I want to get rid of the Kurds. And, and with the U.S. pulling out, then that sort of empowers him to go in and kind of wipe out Kurds as much as possible. And then you have you have the Russians and, and Assad saying, hey, these Kurds are a thorn in our side too. So so the generals are, are rightfully feeling like, hey, we, we, we buddied up with these guys, and we helped fight ISIS, and it really made a huge difference, and now we're just going to pull out, turn our backs on them, and we really can't do this. I mean, what's that going – what's that going to say to anybody downstream that we're going to want to enlist as, as allies on our side? Okay, so that's a, that's a good point. Looking back further, you can say, well, what created ISIS? And you can say, well <laughs> – uh, George W. Bush and the neocons and American policies and the invasion of Iraq created ISIS because we destroyed the infrastructure of the country. We we took the ruling people and threw them out. We buddied up with with you know with the party against against uh, Saddam Hussein and all of those highly trained people who ran the military and ran the countries were then suddenly out of a job and starving. And basically, they had their way to survive and their way to do things was team up and create ISIS. So they were ISIS and they were allied with ISIS. It's hard to separate the two. And so it really was an American creation. Going back further, looking back further in how our interventions created all of these problems in the Middle East, in the 1950s, when BP, uh, the, the petroleum in Iran, Iran, was – uh, they were talking about Mossadegh was a Western, educated, very, you know, liberal, very, very not not liberal in the bad sense, but in a good sense. He he was he was educated. He was for women's rights. He was for equal rights of men and women. He was down on Islamic fundamentalism, and he was the freely elected ruler of Iran, and he was facing. Uh, 
people who were very hard communist and and really wanted to take over and boot all the foreigners out of Iran. And, and, and instead, we ended up with this kind of really good guy, middle-of-the-road guy. But what he looked at was that his country was pumping all of the money out, out – you know, it, it, all of the resources of Iran was basically in their oil, and he said, "Hey, I have poor people. You know, we have a lot of very poverty-stricken people, and, and not much education. And our natural wealth is all going out of this country, and we're getting very little in return. Most of the people who are being paid a lot of money in our country are foreigners who come in to work the oil industry. So he said, "Hey, I want like a twenty percent cut, you know, and and which." In retrospect, looks very reasonable. In fact, what he re- requested was less than what we ended up giving the Saudis, uh, which is a much more repressive regime than the Mossadegh regime was in, in Iran. So what he was requesting was very reasonable from a historical perspective. But BP didn't like that. They're like used to running the show and calling the shots and making all the money. So they enlisted the help of the United States and the CIA and the and Britain's equivalent of the CIA together teamed up with our CIA and they funded and staged a coup that threw out Mossadegh and he spent the next 3 years in house arrest and he died in in his home under house arrest and the country went down the tubes because we replaced this really progressive well-loved leader with the Shah of Iran who was death squads and torture teams and and basically he kind of said hey you guys can sell all your Coca-Cola and all the American goods you want and and take all of our oil and make all the money you want, provided that you make me incredibly rich and, and wealthy and you give me all the military training and all of – and we went and trained him in how to do torture and, and how to you know get get information out of suspects and things like that. that so, so we cut our own throats in the Middle East because up until then, we were kind of seen as good guys. And after that, we were seen as really bad guys that we took this progressive, democratically elected guy and threw him out and replaced him with – with basically a fascist totalitarian leader that was totally in favor of torture and death squads and secret police. So that made the basis for the revolution where what was interesting, and I have a good friend who is Iranian, and the revolution teamed up the liberal left with the fundamentalist right to overthrow the Shah, but then over time, the Ayatollahs took over the revolution and basically imprisoned the guys on the left. And so what my friend was in prison for a couple of years and thought that he was actually going to die in prison and he'd never see the light of day. But he was a really good cook and he's a really nice guy and he's really fun and the guards loved him and he cooked meals for him every day. So after two years of watching some of his friends get executed every week, they just let him out of jail one day. So, so anyway, there's some history there of the Middle East and how we got into such a terrible mess. And it's not a simple, easy thing to, to just say, oh, here's a simple solution now that we've messed it up so bad. But what it points to is, too, is the dangers of our intervention in messing things up and doing the wrong things. And right now, the fact that we have John Bolton in there, who's even more of a war hawk than the generals who had Trump's ear. So here we have this man, Trump, who said, we're not going to get into foreign wars. We're going to stay out of that business. It's going to be, you know, we're going to like stop intervening all around the world. Now you've got like 
you know, the worst intervening guy you can imagine just about who's who's there bending Trump's ears. So it's a very scary situation. And this is going to sound very isolationist, but even, even, and I don't believe that Assad is responsible because just a, a few mere months ago, he was ga- gaining ground and getting rid of ISIS and the civil war was coming to an end. So the world was watching that thinking, okay. And even Trump said, let's leave him alone. All of a sudden, another chemical, chemical attack. What kind of dumb person would do such a thing to get the entire world against him. Look, at in 2015, Turkey was caught smuggling ISIS oil across the border from Syria. Assad is loved by his people. Syria is one of the last bastions in the Middle East that protects Christians. And I think the issue here, actually there are multiple issues. There's the pipeline, and there's the issue of the Shias and the Alawites, What is Syria mostly? Shia. What is Iran mostly? Shia. There's no central bank also. And of course, Assad has to go. Even General Wesley Clark said that when the plan, you know, years ago, it was Afghanistan, it was Iraq, Iran, Syria was part of the plan. Apparently, this has been delayed. So, and by the way, Clark changed his version afterwards. I think somebody talked to him. So I think this is ridiculous that they're pointing the finger at Assad. And even if he did, let's pretend that he actually did it. Why is it our business to continue spending trillions of dollars and losing our military, their lives over there? Why? I'll have to agree with you on that. And also the thought of, wait a minute, if you go in and bomb a bunch of buildings and kill a bunch of people, with bombs and machine guns, they're just as dead as whether they're killed with chemical weapons or that. I'm really not quite exactly. sure why it's like, oh, well, we have rules and, you know, dead is dead is dead. And whether it's like an Israeli bomb that's blowing up Palestinians and they're seeing their kids or their and their husbands and wives, you know, dying in the debris – it's horrible any way you look at it, whether they whether they're choking on on chemical weapons or dying from being blown to pieces. I mean, it, dead is dead and crippled is crippled. Now, let's get into the meat of things now. What are your biggest concerns that are keeping you up at, at night? Let's begin with that, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, every American alive today only has heard of war through their ancestors, their perhaps their late father or, or, or grandparents. I mean, we're losing a lot of the great generation that fought World War II. Those are the people who won wars. Now, this newer generation, they, they fought wars in Iraq, Afghanistan. But most Americans who are here today who are non-military have no idea of what war on their soil is. And a lot of European people listen to this program, so they know. But us here in the United States... We're so isolationist when it comes to war here. What would happen? Paint a picture of what would happen. And I know many people are going to say, Mel, that's not going to happen. We have nuclear weapons. That's the biggest deterrent. We'll never see war. We'll never see Chinese troops or Russian troops walking our soil or United Nations. Are we right or are we wrong? Well, chances that we'll see troops walking our soil is very slim, but but it could get there through a roundabout way. The, the most likely scenario is that we're going to see a war that 
destroys the United States, and the United States will never exist again as we know it. And the reason that would happen is there's retribution for our invasion of another country. So it's retribution in one of two ways. It's retribution by a terrorist act or it's retribution by a country that we've invaded that basically as in their – in their dying, screw you to the United States. They, for instance, in North Korea, if we did the preemptive strike that someone like John Bolton uh, seems to be suggesting we do, uh, if I was Kim Jong Un and the United States was invading and made it clear they're taking me out, you know, I, I think he has the capability. I would probably do. What you know? What I would probably do if I was him, and I think he has the capability, is send at least a single nuclear device on on a missile for a high altitude blast over the center of the United States that would take out the entire United States grid and and most in all of the critical electronics in the affected zone. And this is a line of sight. This is called an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse. So the chances that he'd send troops to the United States, and unless it was an after-the-fact of a pulse thing, and they wanted to clean up after the fact and take over the United States, which somebody could do, and, and it's certainly a possibility. I mean, North Korea wouldn't, but you know, a China or somebody else could, or Russia could decide. Well, you know, we're going to go and take it over and restore order because the country is gone as as far as it, and it'll never come back the way it used to be. So at that point, after an EMP attack, it's conceivable that you could have some foreign country deciding to restore order to the United States and come in and send their troops here. Uh, but say, you know, going backing back up, what's an e in high altitude EMP do? That's when a missile uh, launches a nuclear device and it, ha it doesn't have to be a big device. It, it, a Nagasaki Hiroshima style bomb, like a very, very basic bomb, which is what we know North Korea has already exploded several times. If they could get that up say 125, 150, 200, 250 miles above the United States, it's a line of sight effect. And there's an E1, E2, E3 effect that happens. And basically in the E1 is like uh, it happens in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a blink of an eye in nanoseconds. And it's like rubbing your feet on the carpet and opening up your computer and sparking a bunch of the chips inside your computer and saying, gee, what, I, I, you know, what do you think that did? And that's like an electrostatic effect that happens almost at the speed of light, and it goes over the entire affected zone, which if, it's, if this missile's up like 100 miles, that's a 2,000-mile circle that covers everywhere from Miami to uh, Quebec City to Ottawa, Ontario, you know, and, and includes Chicago and includes the entire east coast of the United States. And, and if they get it up like 200 miles, then it basically covers the entire continental United States. So, so then the E2 effect is is like thousands to millions of lightning bolts happening in the next two seconds over the affected zone. And so all of those cool surge protectors we have on our electronic devices will be destroyed by the E1 effect unless they're mil-spec, polyphaser, or similar style surge protectors. All of our cool surge protectors will be destroyed, and you'll be having these lightning bolt-like effects happening all over and running down the lines and things that weren't destroyed by the E1 effect, you know, much of our electronic stuff will be destroyed by the E2 effect. And then, like, in the next uh, half, you know, half a minute to 20 minutes, the E3 effect comes along, and that's like this long, slow burn, 
and it induces these giant megawatts of power in all of those high tension lines that crisscross the United States where they're up, you know, like a half a mile between towers and they're 200 foot tall towers. So basically at the ends of each of these lines, they have these massive transformers called EHV transformers that transform the power up and down from a quarter of a million volts to over a million volts back to usable things. And that's what interconnects our grid all across the country and sends huge amounts of power from our power plants to major you know, distribution areas. And, and at each end of those has a massive transformer that's hundreds of tons each, that is tens of millions of dollars each. And these are custom made and custom built for each installation. And there's a if you rush them in, it's a one-year waiting line to get a rush transformer, and the average waiting line for non-rush situations is three years to get one of these things built and installed. So basically, this is what keeps our interconnected grid going, and each at the end of each of these lines, they're going to fry. And the numbers that would fry in a single EMP is several hundred of these, which is like uh, – or several – thousand problem actually yeah, yeah at least four or five hundred of these would fry in an EMP and, and you're talking like when South Africa lost 14 in a 2003 electrical uh, solar storm it took a year of rolling blackouts to keep the country going and to rush them in from all around the world to replace 14 so now imagine if instead of 14 we lose like five or six hundred then you're talking years to rush the stuff in from all around the world to replace these. And not only that, all that critical infrastructure is down, so immediately there's no sewage treatment, no water treatment, no oil refining. And the worst of it all is the control systems that keep our nuclear power plants controlled and cooled and working properly will instantly fry from the E1 effect so that means that across the United States, we're going to have dozens of Fukushima-like meltdowns happening in the first 30 minutes after an EMP attack with a single nuclear device. So essentially, most of the United States uh, will be uninhabitable for decades, for generations to come. It will be polluted and you'll need to leave and pick up and move. So you're talking the end of the United States as we know it from a single nuclear device that doesn't directly kill a single human being, but indirectly may cause us to lose 90% of our population in the first year. So, you know, this is, this is the end result of chest bumping and threatening and causing, you know, invading another country such as North Korea with a, quote, preemptive strike or simply the result of a terrorist attack where, say, some Saudi sheik is tired of America being so, you know, meddling in the Middle East and killing a million civilians in Iraq died as a result of our intervention. Somebody could easily say, you know, a million of our people have died because of what the United States has done. So we 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 bought a nuclear device and a missile and the technology in the black market. We got it out of the Soviet Union or we got it from Korea or we got it from, you know, we got it from Pakistan, which is infiltrated at all levels with fundamentalist Islamists and and you know military and and in government so wherever they got it they they managed to get something out and they stuck it to the United States and said hey 
you guys have been bullying us for decades, so uh, take that. See how you like it. So anyway, hopefully it'll never happen, but it's a significantly – it's probably better than a better than a 50-50 chance that uh, this is somewhere in our future, not too far down the road. Don't you find it interesting that once the situation is diffused, take North Korea as an example, the next subject comes up, Syria and Russia, and there we go. We have the Petro Yuan surfacing now, and I think the only reason why the United States has been the economic – powerhouse it has become was due to the agreement with the Saudis in the early 1970s. But this seems to, it's about to change with China saying, hey, we're going to have our own way of transacting with oil. We'll buy oil in, 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 our, in Yuan. Libya tried it. You know what happened to Gaddafi. Right. Uh, Saddam Hussein tried it. We know what happened to him. But we can't tell China, you need to stop it or else. Do you think that all this war mongering that's taking place is because the United States knows that if this petro yuan and even Russia get along and they start buying and selling oil in their currencies, that's it for the United States? I, I certainly understand the reasoning behind it, and I've, I've heard the argument many times. I'm, I don't don't really subscribe to that, but it's certainly possible because, I mean, if if Kennedy could be assassinated because he was pulling us out of Vietnam and because he was going to nationalize the Federal Reserve and he had enough enemies within government and banksters and mafia and the military industrial complex that they could successfully stage a covert operation to – assassinate the president of the United States and replace him with a leader who who basically was not going to do those things, then certainly it's not beyond our government's and global elite's ability to do something like this. Now, do I think that's what's going on now? I know that they're very worried about that. I know it's pretty clear that Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, both of them basically said – Okay, I'll give up our weapons of mass destruction. Okay, I'll, you know, here, take them. I mean, that's what, you know, Korea is looking at that and saying the last thing we're going to do is give up our nuclear weapons. Look what happened to Saddam. Look what happened to Gaddafi. I mean, you know, if we do that, then chances are, you know, Kim Jong-un's going to follow in Saddam's and Gaddafi's footsteps. I mean, that's that's a pretty strong incentive to keep the nuclear weapons and say, hey, you know, nobody's gone into Israel. Nobody's gone into India. Nobody's gone into Pakistan. You know, these are all countries that have a successful nuclear deterrent. So North Korea says, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious you don't have the deterrent. Look what happens. So, um, but are they planning this war actively to do to accomplish that feat? I, I'm not. I don't think so because I, I agree with you that we really can't threaten China and say do this or else because China is just too big. And, you know, very established and, and they're so entwined in our own, um, you know, in all of our business and, and in our economy that we can't just get rid of China. You know, they're not small players. They're big. They're big players. And so I think this is something that the people who run the show are are, are fearful about, but they're also so entrenched in a global economy and invested in stock markets all around the world. So I'm not quite sure 
how fearful they are of it. I mean, I, they know it's not going to be the same, that that uh, the U.S. established ourselves as the number one world power, basically, because at, when World War II was over, we were the only major power with, with a fully functioning industrial base, you know, and so we were we were the kings of the world right then, because, you know, we had it all. Uh, we we had had no war on our soil, and, and all the other major world powers had, so, you know, we were still fully intact. And then I think we continued that by the Saudi deal where we tied all of the petrodollars of the world into trading in U.S. dollars. So I think we continued the financial domination of the world uh, along with the industrial power. And uh, and I think we're seeing the decline because you know through the 50s, we basically had – and into the 60s, we really had massive resources on our own soil. And then as our – as the global economy grew exponentially, it outgrew the natural resources in the United States. So we had to start pulling from the resources of the third world and all around the world to support this exponential growth machine. And uh, now we're seeing the results where exponential growth is is causing huge problems throughout the world. And I think <laughs> there's no real simple answers. I mean, we've seen like 73% of the world's zooplankton disappear in the last 50 years, most of that in the last 20 years. Uh, we've seen 25% of the world's coral reefs die in the last 50 years, and another 75, another 50% uh, are in danger of short-term death. We've seen 80% loss in the biomass of the world's fish and species in the oceans in the last 100 years, and 60% of that's happened in the last 40 years. And we're seeing massive die-off in bird populations and insect populations. So um, there are no easy answers to these problems because we've overshot the Earth's capacity to support the, the kind of exponential growth uh, and consumption and population growth all tied together that we're seeing. So, so we're seeing a lot of messy – a really messy future down the road, even if we do things reasonably well, because we're running into these limits, and the old way of doing business in the world is not going to is not sustainable and is killing the planet. And so, uh, do we go down in a flame of resource wars, or do we manage uh, a change and a shift uh, in a sustainable way, uh, which is going to involve really changing the way we do business in the world? And, and so far. We're headed for the flaming, um, the flaming descent. It is is really the only direction we're going in right now. We're not seeing any kind of true sustainable shift. So, uh, I've, I've kind of muddied the water there. I know I went a bit off stray of your question, but I'm, I'm bringing in some areas of real major concern for myself in in our patterns of growth and consumption and how we're destroying the planet and uh, and we're headed for the cliff if we don't do something radically different in the way we uh, run our our politics and our business in the world and no problem at all i want you to go anywhere you want with the answers because as much as i want to just focus on one thing there are so many parts in this chess game but for example allegedly 40 children died in syria i haven't seen seemed uh, any tangible proof of that yet. But if we're really considering going there because of a humanitarian quote-unquote crisis, take Venezuela as an example. There are thousands of people dying every month. They're starving. There are no 
pigeons in parks, so that you have an idea. No pigeons in yeah. parks. There are no stray dogs or cats. People are eating them. There are kids killing each other, trying to get better trash. People are leaving the country to, to Colombia. I mean, talk about a humanitarian crisis and a big oil exporter. Isn't Venezuela our second oil biggest oil exporter, I think? So why don't we look at Venezuela? But we're not. And one thing that I posted in social media a few days ago, so people know that I don't want to spread fear. And I don't like to predict, but I like to project based on past performance or numbers. But we first have a trade imbalance. We had it with China and with many other countries. Then we had a financial crisis. Then we had a currency war with China. Now we have a trade war and look what's happening. Finally, Xi Jinping a few days ago said, okay, we're going to lower the tariffs on U.S. imports of vehicles. So that seems to be, you know, perhaps make, you know, better. And then after the trade war comes the next one, the hot war. And that's where we're heading right now, Matt. It, it is where we're heading. And it's frightening because, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, you know, anytime you have like Soviet and Turkey and Kurds and U.S., you know, that's, there's the potential there for it to escalate in really horribly. I mean, look at what happened in World War One. You had a fanatical guy in Austria, Hungary, you know, yeah. a Serbian guy who assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand with a pistol. Okay. And that led to World War One that sucked in countries from all over and millions and People died and economies fell and countries' borders got rewritten and all of that. And that was just some, some fanatical guy with a pistol from Serbia you know, who started all that off. So mixing, mixing everything up in Syria certainly has the potential to blow up in our face. I mean we've seen all in the past. Look, look at how our intervention – in Iraq, you know, game over, you know, like mission accomplished, the famous George W. Bush thing, you know, with on the destroyer or on the aircraft carrier saying, well done, boys, mission accomplished. Well, you know, 15 years later, there's still lots of people dying. In fact, there's a lot more people dying than died in the chemical attack in Syria. And they're still dying from explosions and, you know, in a marketplace. I mean, a bomb goes off in a marketplace and kills 200 people. Why is that? Not a big deal, and, and the chemical weapons and 60 kids died is a big deal. I mean, they're all terrible deals, but certainly, like you said, compared to what the million civilians that died in Iraq, I mean, this is nothing. And uh, yeah, and, and to go in and turn everything around for that, it's, it's asking for another giant blow up. Um, and afterwards, you know, look to look back and say, oh, wow, I didn't think it was going to end like that. I mean, yeah, the potential the potential for screw up is really huge, and and what are we really doing now? You know, I like I said, I think the generals are saying, hey, we can't turn our backs on the Kurds that we backed, and we can't just back out and leave them to get wiped out by people pinching them into a corner. Uh, it's just once you get in, it's really messy to get out. Yeah, but there's the historical amnesia, and I'm so glad you brought the Archduke Ferdinand issue that it was the tripwire event that took us to World War One. Right now, I'm seeing some 
deja vu happening. I just posted on social media two pictures. A picture of uh, an image of Colin Powell in 2003 showing that little vial of uh, chemical weapons. And then in 2018, another picture of Theresa May in the UK, more or less saying the same thing. Now, why do I bring the correlation between Archduke Ferdinand? Because we had these, uh, the, the ex-spy that was uh, uh, attacked with a nerve agent in in the in uh, the UK, and it's allegedly by a poison. They're pointing the fingers at Russia. But even UK government experts are coming out today saying, we cannot find any evidence to point the finger at Russia. Yet, Theresa May is pointing the finger at Russia. They're expelling all the diplomats. Is this more or less what we're seeing now? Archduke Ferdinand could be the Russian ex-spy being killed, almost murdered in the UK? It's certainly possible. You know, there's, there's looking at the past and at how many bad roads were headed down based on rash actions. I mean, when you look at the Pentagon Papers saying that, hey, we knew Vietnam was not winnable, we knew, and we just kept lying to the American people and going forward. And then you look at Kennedy who said, decided, like, hey, you know, I think going, escalating here is not a good idea, and let's turn this around. And then he's whacked, and somebody else comes in who's all gung-ho for going forward. And similar, you know, the Colin Powell thing of, of like, faking the data and saying, let's go after Saddam, and a million civilians are dead 10 years later because of that. Though, you know, how are you going to bring – the infrastructure is destroyed. Those civilians are dead. Those lives are gone. Dead is dead is dead. Um, you know, you can't turn the clock back and say, oops, afterwards, and it's always better to be cautious. Now, certainly – you know, if you look at like a Hitler and you could say, well, we're, we're, you know, ignoring Wilson's 14 points is what set Germany up for Hitler. That if they had had a better, a less retributive solution and peace after World War One, then World War Two never would have happened. So, you know, we, we really got to look back in history and go cautiously and be careful. And I don't think anybody is doing that right now. I totally agree with you on that. I'm not I'm not sure what's a false flag, what's not. But I'm saying there, you know, there's not much caution being exercised there. And there's a lot of chest bumping and a lot of threatening. By the way, you mentioned North Korea, and we see that the situation appears to be de-escalating. At the same time, I remember, you may remember, a TV series about 10 years ago called Jericho, uh, where they had a similar event happening, an EMP, and he was blamed, I believe it was North Korea. But in fact, the actors you know, in the show found out that it was actually the United States. It was a false flag event in order to create a different type of government. They divided the United States into two, I believe. But everyone looks at North Korea, but there's a country that seems to be somewhat off the radar, even though they're ruled by extremists with a nuclear arsenal. The Islamist state of Pakistan, they're rapidly building their nuclear arsenal and is poised to become the world's number three nuclear power within a decade. What is your take on Pakistan, and should we be concerned? Well, Pakistan is honestly the country that scares me the most as far as 
an EMP attack on the United States. I mean, I see North Korea as not as launching an attack except in retribution. In other words, if, if North Korea was preemptively invaded, as John Bolton and others have suggested we should do, and as Trump actually seemed to be leaning towards even before Bolton, just a few months ago, he was talking about, you know, we should take him out. Um, I'd say North Korea's threat is primarily in that, uh, you know, if we invade, then they'll say, screw you to the United States, and they're saying, we're done, but so are you too, and and here's here's a parting goodbye. Um, Pakistan, however, when when I was at MIT in the 70s, I lived in the dorm, which was the cheapest, oldest dorm on on campus. It was a converted apartment building, and there was like little apartments with kitchens. And so there's a lot of foreign students that stayed in the dorm. It was kind of run down and grungy and cockroach-filled, and so it was not very popular with a lot of the American students. But uh, I had a bunch of packies in the in the apartments around me, and they'd been sent there by their government, which was really controlled by the generals, and they were all studying like electrical engineering, computer science, physics, nuclear physics, astrophysics, all that kind of stuff. And they were overjoyed one day when a rumor flew around that the military dictator of Pakistan had been assassinated and overthrown. And then a couple of, you know, they found out later, like 24 hours later, that that was just a rumor and wasn't true. But they knew that they owed their lives and futures to the state and to the military when they returned to Pakistan. Now, those people, um, you know, returned from places like MIT and built Pakistan's nuclear, you know, their nuclear army. And they have 120 nuclear weapons. They have a bunch of nuclear reactors, and they're on track to keep adding a bunch of nuclear weapons every year. And those reactors provide a lot of material that they can then reprocess into bombs. And so they're basically pretty close to France and England's number of weapons, and they're on track to pass them um, within – a couple of years and then to pass China within the decade. And so they have the technology and they're, ha- they're an Islamist state, which – and I'm not down on, on Islam in general, but they have a lot of fundamentalists within the government and within the military at all levels. And so the chance – of exporting that technology for a terrorist at launch, which didn't have Pakistan's direct signature on it, is, I think, fairly significant. And and the chance that some, you know, say Saudi Arabian fundamentalist sheik with, you know, more money than God funds a plot to export some of that technology out of Pakistan, and then it gets launched against the United States. I'd say that that's a really significant threat. Now, some people say, well, Matt, you know, you're being like really, really paranoid, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, this will never happen. Well, I gave an EMP – I spoke at an EMP symposium in Delta, Utah, this tiny little town, and we had like 2,000 people there. And General Krosniak, who's a like a three-star general, reti- recently retired, came to this symposium, and, and he and I co-presented together, and he shared a slide with me. And the slide showed a North Korean ship that was filled with 10,000 tons of sugar sacks, and underneath those sugar sacks were two nuclear-capable missiles. And this ship had been pulled 
off to the side in the Panama Canal when it was under U.S. jurisdiction. And they said, hey, you know, we're just shipping sugar. What are you doing? And they said, and so they, they pulled them off to the side. They unloaded the 10,000 tons of sugar. And they pulled out these two nuclear-capable missiles underneath. And one can only assume – I couldn't be – the general couldn't tell me how, how that happened. But you can assume that the spy satellites watched these missiles – being, you know, made and shipped from wherever facility makes their missiles and loaded onto trains and then unloaded and then loaded onto this boat and then had all the sugar loaded on top of it and then tracked it across the world's oceans until it left international waters and came under the U.S. jurisdiction in the Panama Canal. And then, you know, the authorities jumped them and, and, and pulled them aside and, you know, dug under the, all those sacks of sugar and got the missiles out of there. So this is a real thing that's happening in the world this isn't fake it's not fake news it's not a fake concern it's a very real and valid concern and uh, it's bound to catch up to us one of these days and the more people we maim and kill throughout the world trying to keep our country flowing in oil and to you know keep our corporations going and not being worried about dirtying our hands with dirty business in other countries because they're just other countries and they're not Christian countries or whatever. You know, the more we do that, the more enemies we'll make in the world and the greater the chance that one of these days it's going to come back on us in a big way. Speaking of Pakistan, you believe you have a story, a behind-the-scenes story of the assassination of bin Laden after by special U.S. special forces. After you tell me your side of the story, I'm going to give a perspective to it. But what's, what do you know? Okay, well, a few years ago, not a couple years back, my publicist, book publicist, said, Matt, you know, I've got this amazing author, and his name is Joseph Agris, and he's an MD from Houston, Texas. And he... He does plastic surgery, and he's an adventuresome Texan guy, and he likes to do medicine for – to help people in foreign countries, to help disfigured children you know, have use of their face, to help with hair lips, to help with extreme disfigurement, to give them – to use his surgery totally – pro bono to to re-give a, ch a chance for a decent life to these people in the third world countries who don't have the opportunity to go out and pay for surgeries like that. So he spent a bunch – he would go to Pakistan every year, and he spent a lot of time there, and he was, he, he was nicknamed the White Angel. And so when he was spending a month or so in Pakistan – doing these surgeries, uh, he was contacted by bin Laden's driver, and he was brought to bin Laden's compound to meet with bin Laden several a couple of years before bin Laden was whacked. And he met with bin Laden on four different occasions, and bin Laden you know, wanted to meet the White Angel, and they were really careful about security and all of this. And he, in fact, had you know, felt duty-bound to report to the authorities where bin Laden was being was 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 living in his compound 
And so he did approach people in the FBI or the CIA, I forget which, without referring back to the book. But his book is called Tears in the Sand, and it's this huge, thick book. It's like 700 and something pages. It's a giant book, and it's really fascinating. And so um, so he spent a fair amount of time actually in bin Laden's compound on four different occasions, and he had dinner with him, and he met his wife and kids, and he discussed his political philosophies, and, and he found it, it hard to believe – you know, hard to see him as this evil devil type that we make him out to be in the West, that he had a lot of points, and he talking – you know, and, and, and so it, he sees like the world is – nothing is totally black and white, so he kind of tried to like look at it from his point of view. But he also felt like, hey, you know, this guy you know, launched an attack on U.S. soil and caused thousands of people, you know, whether you believe it was uh, you know, allowed to happen as part of the neocons' ways of you know, justifying entering Iraq or not, let's – Let's not focus on that at this point in time, but but um, so anyway, he reported and initially there were people like, wow, wow, you know where Bin Laden is? Wow, this is great, this is great. So he starts going up the chain, and then all of a sudden they say, well, thank you very much, you know, kind of a higher level person so, sort of meets him and says, well, thank you very much, we'll take it from here, and you know we really appreciate your interest in this. And they didn't hear anything, and you know, a couple of years go by, it turned out that his last visit to Bin Laden. As he was leaving dinner that evening, he heard the helicopters coming in, and he climbed up a tree in the nearby neighborhood to watch what happened. Saw like the helicopter crash, then saw them blow it up because they probably didn't want to leave it behind. They knew they couldn't fly it out of there. Nobody died in the crash. It just it clipped something in the fence as it was landing in there in the dark, and they saw some fire fire go on and stuff like that. But so the there was another person, another article that I'd read a while after the bin Laden thing that said that things didn't really add up in the official story that, you know, that they tensely heard that bin Laden had been found. And then they did this secret op to go in and take out bin Laden and, and, you know, and, and all of, and capture him and all of this. So, and, and this other article said, you know, things just didn't really add up. There was too many, too many things in here that didn't add up. Well, when I, I already knowing that, uh, this, this plastic surgeon had met Bin Laden four different times, four different occasions, the last of which being the actual night that he was uh, whacked. It's kind of like, okay, okay, how did this really happen? You know, what really went on here? Well, near as I can tell, here's what the story is. Pakistan knew all along where Bin Laden was. He basically was under house arrest. He knew he couldn't go out. Pakistan and is Islamist country and bin Laden is considered a, a national hero there. And the United States had sold a Lockheed Martin Marietta top, you know, state of the art radar system to Pakistan to protect their borders to kind of maintain the balance of power between India and Pakistan. We're basically allied with both India and Pakistan and they they're really um kind of enemies, you know, that 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 have border disputes and all kinds of problems between the two of them and they're both nuclear powers. So we have an interest in maintaining a balance of power there and a peace there. And we have an interest also in keeping the current government of Pakistan in power because that government, though, you know, is an official ally of the United States. They allowed us to launch missions in Iraq from Pakistan. 
and they allow you know some American military presence there, and we sell them a lot of really expensive, high-priced stuff. So yeah, they can be American, bought. Look, look at nine eleven. Right. So our military-industrial complex wants to maintain this, you know, this alliance with uneasy alliance with Pakistan because it's worth a lot of money. You know, I mean, that's right. Look at nine eleven; it's worth a lot of money. So we've got. We've got this uneasy alliance there, and we have an interest in keeping them in power. Plus, what we don't want to see happen is is an ISIS-like state in Pakistan, which it certainly has that potential to go that direction if if the current you know government fell. I mean, so so we kind of like this sort of military strongman type of government we've got in Pakistan right now, and uh, you know it, it it works for us strategically. So. We have this uncomfortable problem, though, that bin Laden is there, and we'd like to get rid of bin Laden, especially since I personally believe that, you know, having been a CIA trained guy, I think he went rogue, just like Saddam went rogue. Basically, Saddam went, screw you to the United States, like, you know, I'm powerful enough now, and I'm going to do what I want here, and I'm not going to trade in petrodollars. Well, um, you, you know, we. We didn't want to see that kind of thing happen in Pakistan there, too, like happened with Saddam and happened with Gaddafi. So, you know, we, we want to kind of keep the balance there. So, so we wanted – but we wanted to get rid of bin Laden because we wanted him dead, not alive, because he knows a lot of dirt on the CIA operations in the Middle East. And he knows, I believe, that – even though I think he was more of a pawn in taking down the World Trade Centers, I think they planned that. But I think we had plants there who knew exactly what was going on and washed it all along. And then buildings can't just collapse like they did there without pre-placed charges. So I think that you know we we most likely, and I don't have enough insider information to totally you know confirm this. So this is just my personal belief. Most likely we had pre-placed charges we had we had moles inside of bin laden's organization we knew exactly what was going on our engineers knew that those buildings are designed to withstand the impact of the 747 so that we had to follow that up with some explosive charges to take those buildings down plus they would have been held to demolish had they not been taken down uh you know, so if we wanted to really demolish them, then you know, and kill a bunch of people, then we had to take them down ourselves. But yeah, but where know, did the towers go? Because hardly any, hardly anything was left. And look at Building Seven too; was not really touched by any plane. Of course not. So Building Seven is the one. As an engineer, I mean, when I first looked at them coming down, I believed, like everybody else, that you know, oh my God, it's been intact and the planes went in. But I have a friend of mine. A close friend of mine from MIT graduated same class as me, who has an apartment on Liberty Street. They had a whole floor. Uh, he he was a, in a startup company and that made him fairly wealthy. And they owned like a floor across the street from the World Trade Center. So I was there when the it was a big giant construction site where they were just they were working on the foundations of all the new buildings and and just starting to build the in, the uh, superstructure steel superstructure of one of the buildings and and so we pointed out where Building Seven was and and so from his apartment now you just look kitty corner across the street right at the two big holes that are fountains that that are the exact footprint of where the two original towers were and then he pointed out where building seven is well he's in a 116 year old apartment building that's four times closer to the nearest tower than building seven was to the nearest tower and 
his building – when the first tower came down, it was the one further from him, and he was shielded somewhat from that tower coming down. So he was one of two people who stayed in the apartment building, and then when the second tower came down, it blew every window out in his building, and a 2,000-pound chiller came through the wall just 10 feet to his left. It would have killed him if he was standing 10 feet left of that, but it didn't. And then he left the building You know, a few hours later when this, everything cleared and he could leave. The truth of the matter is that his building, his 100-plus-year-old apartment building, was four times closer to those towers than Building 7 was, and there was zero structural damage. A lot of cosmetic damage to his buildings, and they got a full remodel job out of it from the insurance company money, but zero structural damage. And yet this modern skyscraper that's four times further away just implodes magically. You know, hours later, because some little fires burn out on the roof and then it implodes. I mean, it's like if you can, if you if you find it hard to believe that the two towers were taken down by anything other than than the planes, when you add in Building Seven, then it's like, wait a minute, modern structures do not implode like that unless they are purposefully demolished, unless the charges are set, unless everything is in place to make them come down. Now, some say there's plasma weapons and this and that, which is possible, but I think that realistically they were taken down. Now, another interesting aside is that I haven't had this conversation on on uh, radio show very much at all. Oh, hold it, but hold several- it. I want you to tell us your conversation that you haven't had on the show, but we have to break the two segments. We have come to the top of the hour. But when we come back... Tell us the remaining part of the story. I'll give you my perspective on Osama bin Laden. Also, somebody contacted me not not too long ago to tell me there was another plane that was supposed to crash in Building 7, and this is why they had to go to Plan B. And what we saw as Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville was probably a rogue uh, military pilot who refused the order to stand down and shot that plane. And that's the debris that we saw scattered by miles. But Matt, how can people buy your books and learn more about your work? And then we'll resume our conversation after the break. Okay, buying the books is, you can get them anywhere at uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I love supporting the local bookstores. So if you can go into your bookstore, you can, if they don't already stock it, you can ask them and they'll order it and they'll be there in like two or three days because it's stocked at all the major distributors. Also, if you want a signed copy, you can go to wentechfails.com or mattstein.com. Now I spell Matt with one T and Matthew with two. So it's M-A-T-S-T-E-I-N.com and uh, and you can order them there. And Plus, there's tons of really great, totally free information on the articles on the website, WhenTechFails.com. The WhenTechFails.com one is very information-intensive, a lot of really great free stuff. Highly recommended you read um, 400 Chernobyl's EMP, Solar Storm, and Nuclear Armageddon. It's a article that I spent six weeks writing. No one was paying me to write it, and uh, it's published with all hot links to like 25 really, really important uh, research topics that I did, you know, a bunch of papers and a bunch of articles that were the foundation of that. So that's a really important article, and that's posted in its entirety with the hot links at wentechfails.com. And when we come back once again, no one alive today has experienced war on American soil. I want you to know what Matt's perspective is 
How does he think that war might come to American soil? And what do you think it would look like for America and what we need to do to prepare? Because remember, the future is for those who prepare today, not tomorrow. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Matthew Stein. You're listening to Veritas. Much more when we return. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.